Anyone can create a map. And we actually think we're pioneering some of the first composability Lego building blocks open metaverse framework where a good map creator, you don't have to create a map. It may be too daunting of a task for you. You could just specialize in creating map objects, prefabs. So barrels, buildings, abandoned cars, whatever obstacles. And you could knit those as NFTs, put your own branding on it, put that on a marketplace for map creators to pull and license into their maps so they don't have to start from zero. Welcome to The Wild Show with your hosts, Will Chang, Lee Chang, and Andrew Su. Hi, this is Will Chang, and as always, I have my co-host, Andrew Su, with me. Happy to be here, Will. Nice new white shirt you got on. Thank you. Today, we have Calvin Zhao with us. Calvin is the co-founder and head of business development for Shrapnel, the world's first blockchain-enabled AAA first-person shooter game. Spun out of HBO, the Shrapnel team consists of Emmy award-winning talent behind such notable franchises as Halo, Call of Duty, Madden NFL, Bioshock, Destiny, Star Wars, Hawken, Skylanders, Westworld. Shrapnel is built on Avalanche, which we talked about in a previous episode with Ed Chang, the head of gaming at Avalanche. I've known Calvin for 15 years, and I admire his ability to break down and explain complex subjects in a way that I can understand. So I'm very excited to have him on to share his knowledge with you today. So Calvin... Your background was in finance. How did you get into games? Yeah, so first of all, thanks for having me on. It's an honor being here. My background is in finance, investment banking, and hedge funds. How did I get into games? Well, I've been playing games all my life. So, you know, started off with StarCraft, modding some of the maps there, then kind of moved on to Counter-Strike 1.6. Was a pretty big player there and did a bunch of RPGs. So I've been essentially playing games all my life. So now I can... Tell my parents that uh, it was all for good fruition. So after sometime during all my stints at on Wall Street, picked up the Bitcoin and Ethereum white papers, read them, took it seriously, and just really got fascinated with technology. Started digging in a bit more about distributed systems, viewed blockchains as deterministic replicated state machines, where if you network a bunch of computers together, you can ensure uptime as long as you have some sort of system to ensure fault tolerance. And it just really got me fascinated about how we can use this technology uh, to increase efficiency in networking and communications and trust. So you got into crypto, you got into Bitcoin, you kind of understand the technology, but what actually led you into creating Shrapnel? The idea was presented to me probably close to two years ago without the blockchain component. It was just this idea of creating this Burning Man playground style platform for the FPS fans out there. Because quite frankly, the FPS world is lacking focus on that kind of platform. It was more, I felt that the content was crammed down on its users. And there was a bit of this relationship between the creator and the fan and to where the creator is almighty creator figure and the fan is just a simple consumer of the content. Um, like I said, I grew up playing StarCraft and modding some of those maps, and it was just really fun and just brought me a lot of joy just, just to create maps and have people play them, even if it was like five people, right? There's just something primal and, and cool about creation. Sort of, I always say it's that creation is kind of at the heart of humanity. It's what makes us human and helps us bond. So that just totally went away with a lot of these FPSs that we're seeing today. So I was just happy that that idea was reintroduced to me. And then at the time, I was super into blockchain, crypto, and 
I thought about the crypto ownership model and thought that this was incredibly brilliant in solving a lot of issues in game today, such as true digital asset ownership, interoperability, trust minimized transactions. But more importantly, it got me thinking with a creator economy or a creator platform, UGC driven game on the blockchain, it essentially helps invert the relationship between what a creator is and is to where now the fan can actually become a co-creator instead of this sort of top-down relationship. Now everyone is part of the ecosystem and you can express your voice unencumbered. And not only can you express your voice, but you can monetize and sort of own that voice as part of the platform. And that got me really excited. So before we get into the mechanics of how it works, first, what is Shrapnel? Shrapnel, you can think of it as Roblox for adults. Roblox were a, you know, specifically fine-tuned for the FPS genre. So the idea is we don't want to create this sandbox environment. We think it's hard to ensure quality control content. Instead, if we just fine-tune it, constrain 99% of the variables and focus the players on that 1% that matters to them, which is creating content, creating cool skins, creating maps, creating map objects, maybe that's a better solution to where everyone is at. You don't get a slew of spam or garbage content. Of course, you don't get to create Mario Kart inside of Shrap as well, or you don't get to turn off gravity and create God mode, but maybe a little bit constraint is actually good and ensures that good content is actually that's just a shrapnel. It's a playground. It's a sandbox, very fine-tuned for the FPS genre. In more specifically, we're focused on the extraction gameplay style. So that was very popular through Escape from Tarkov. And we kind of believe in this sort of second mover principle that often a new genre gets introduced. It's a bit intense or hardcore or flawed. And the second mover comes in and polishes off the rough edges. If you've played Escape from Tarkov, you'll know that it's pretty demanding. It's like trying to fly aircraft day one. There's this pretty steep learning curve. And we're just trying to make that a bit more accessible and user-friendly. To get deeper into what extraction gameplay actually is, you could think of it as a battle royale, but with a persistent inventory. So as we know from battle royales, the Fortnites and PUBGs and Apex Legends of the world, Essentially, you float into a map, there's players around you, you collect gear, you kill the people, but you try to survive and get basically become the last man standing as a circle restricts you and keeps on the map size keeps on street. Now, with a extraction shooter, the existence of a persistent inventory is a bit of a game changer because in a battle royale, each match is in a vacuum. It's a series of independent events. You can think of it as independent coin flips. There's a winner and loser. There's a binary outcome after each match. Your inventory resets. You don't get to carry anything over besides your skill, essentially, or besides learning more, getting better at aiming. In the extraction shooter, that changes that dynamic. Instead of independent coin flips, you have a progressive system of events where you can load in, you can take items out as long as you get out with it alive. We'll give you a couple of points of extraction, essentially, where you could choose your own adventure and risk tolerance level. And once you get out with it, you could place those items back into your persistent inventory for the next match where you can risk whatever you want out of your inventory. You don't have to risk all of it. You could risk just one item. You could, of course, go in guns and blazing with maxed out gear. But it's up to you how much you want to risk for that next match. And that adds a lot more dimensionality to the battle royale genre in that you no longer have to view a match in a vacuum. It's like 3D chess. You have to figure out what you did before, what you are doing this match, and what you will do the next match. So maybe this match, you skirt around the edges just to collect some loot and then gear up for the next match where you go guns a blazing, stay till the bitter end. And we find that this progressive system 
works quite well with the blockchain because blockchains, like I said before, are replicated state machines that record the current state or account balances and then state transitions. So in a progressive RPG system on top of the FPS framework, you have the current state, you're recording state transitions because of that progression in a battle royale, because the state is always refreshing and changing, it's hard to record state and state transitions on the blockchain. So when you explain this game to me, because I don't really play that games very much. And when you explained this game to me, it actually gave me an aha moment when you explained it like poker, right? Where you have the cash game versus the tournament game, like any battle royale game or CSGO where they're constantly refreshing, you're playing a tournament every like five minutes, right? And so you don't actually really care if you lose all your chips. Whereas with Tarkov or with Shrapnel, because what you explained to me before was like an RPG game where you're bringing a state, like you said, where you're basically, they're higher stakes, right? Could you explain what cash game is in this Shrapnel? Like, how does it feel for people that hasn't played games before? Sure. So you could think of poker as one of the earlier progressive type games where you have an inventory, it's your chip size, and then you have a series of matches that you load into that you can take however many chips from your persistent inventory, load that into a, a cash game with a bunch of players, PVP against them, and then whoever wins or loses gets the other person's chips. And then you can extract with those chips and place that back into your persistent inventory or your stack. And your the point of poker is to constantly increase your stack size, right? Well, of course, it's also to have fun, but the underlying economics is to increase your stack size. And you can risk however much of that stack you want per match in any cash game. If you just add 3D characters on a Unreal 5 engine on top of that, it kind of gives you an idea of this correlation there. And even in poker, there's times where you can cash out, right? You have the flop where you get to see some stuff, but not all the cards. And then the turn in the river where you get to see more of it. And at each turn, the stakes get higher. So we're actually implementing something similar to where maybe uh, in the first 10 minutes of the match, we give you the chance to get out. It's like the first extraction time and point. A couple of dropships will spawn randomly in various locations. If you're an amateur and you've collected some loot, this is probably the time for you to get out. You can quit while you're still ahead, but there's always that what if. That what if moment where you can stay till the, the turn, the next 10 minutes where you know there's going to be more wolves, but you opt into it, right? You opt into that risk because you just want to see that next card. You want to see the turn. And then same applies to the river, the final drop ship. You know exactly where you're getting yourself into. The top five wolves are going to be out there, but that slip will be. That's also where the esports comes in. So if I'm a player, I'm going to explain it as a player. I'm a new player. Yeah. I don't have any equipment. I don't have any nice guns or anything like that. I enter into the extraction world and I'm trying to find loot, right? I'm trying to find equipment. I shoot a couple of people. I'm able to steal their equipment. They die. They don't keep get to keep their equipment because they're dead. On the first extraction point where you could potentially come out, you're like, okay, I got lucky, right? I got some equipment. I'm actually going to pull out, right? Because now yeah. I can save that equipment versus if I die, I just lose it. Whereas if there's people that are more expert level, they're ready to go further along because the actual equipment that they could potentially get because the people are more legit, they're more skilled, and the loot is way better. They can go in further down and basically experience that because there's more reward at the very end, right? And so that's kind of like how it goes until the last man standing. 100%, yeah. And we think that's actually quite equitable for players of all skill level because in a battle royale, 
the only win is the last player. So it's quite binary. Whereas here, everyone's kind of a winner. We just, you just choose your own win conditions. The stakes are really high too, right? Because you could spend hours or even months accumulating equipment and then you bring that equipment into the game and then you die and you lose all your hard work. We try to set it up to where it's not so egregious in terms of the amount you're risking. That We want the game to be first and foremost fun and two, it doesn't price people out. First of all, you don't lose your skins. At least that's not the default mode. You only lose the underlying gear. So the skin, which is also an empty, attaches to the gear, which by the way, everything's an empty. You have to pick that up besides bullets and consumes. So when you die, the gear drops as an NFT, your skin stays attached. The gear has a couple of tiers and the base tier will be priced very reasonably to where no one's gonna go home crying if they lose that level of gear. And you could view it as the cheapest poker table you can find. You can opt into what type of risk match. You can opt into that. So for people that haven't played games before, what's the difference between a skin and equipment or gear? Yeah, so gear is just the raw pistol or the raw machine gun or the raw helmet. And a skin is just a cosmetic layer on top. And because we're a creator platform, you can also create skins. So we don't want you to create a really cool skin, spend 20 hours on it, and then just lose it immediately the next match, right? We want to give you the option to opt into that system. Of course, you can lose skins. We're going to introduce this sort of opt-in hardcore pink slip mode, if you will. Of course, that's, you know, in my opinion, that's where a lot of value will accrue. So maybe those are the big boys table where there's going to be a lot of value risk, but you don't have to play. That's not the default game mode. The skin, if you do lose the underlying gear and the skin gets essentially detached, you have to find another gear to replace it. Otherwise you just won't display it with that skin. So before we get into how it's all built on blockchain and how it all makes sense. I wanted to get into the story of Shrapnel, right? You have these extraction points, you have this game mechanics. Like what's the story wrapped around this game in order to make it really fun and engaging? Yeah, so of course, every good game needs a story. We've got to give people a reason why they're loading into a map, extracting things and shooting themselves, right? So Shrapnel starts in about 2046, 2044, sometime in a distant, near but distant future. So it's going to be a bit milsim with a bit of that future tech flair. Basically, an asteroid has hit the moon and created a big asteroid hit the moon and created uh, and shattered it. And debris from the asteroid circles around the moon and this then creates this Saturn-like ring around it that slowly swerves down on Earth. And while the Earth is spinning, that band slowly hits the Earth in this sort of sacrifice zone. You can think of it as a Grand Canyon type strip. It doesn't completely demolish Earth. And what happens is private military forces immediately go to the area and secure it off, uh, wall it off, because everyone knows asteroids equals platinum equals money, right? So there's trillions of dollars involved here. Now, so far, that's pretty ordinary. Private military forces try to extract the minerals, but the twist comes when someone finds an unknown alien particle called shrapnel. It's not on the periodic table. They bring it back to labs. No one could figure out what the heck this thing does, right? Until finally, years later, a scientist discovers that once the scientist is flipping a coin next to it and figures out that the expected value is no longer 50-50, it's more like 70-30 or even 80-20. And it's absolutely startled by this discovery, right? Calling it Sigma drift. Sigma is standard deviation. 
And we find that it skews the normal distribution curve one way or another. And then upon further inspection, find that, that the particle shrapnel creates this field where quantum mechanics essentially merges with classical physics. So as we know, a, a problem that's plagued physicists for decades is what happens in the quantum world is very different from what happens in the real world. Um, in the real world, it's very deterministic, F equals M8, but in the quantum world, particles can exist in two places at one time, cause and effect are reversed, and things have a probability distribution function. Nothing is deterministic. And so we finally have a grand unified theory with the shrapnel particle. So with that, essentially, scientists pour research into it and you can actually control it. I guess what I'm saying is, bottom line, you're able to bend probabilities and luck in your favor. And so it introduces a lot of philosophical debates, such as, should we be able to control luck? Can we control luck? And what are the ramifications of control of doing so? Obviously, a lot of money is poured into this and a sort of this super evil megacorp forms the sort of Skynet of the world and wars are waged around that. And that is sort of the setting that you kind of fall into for travel. Now in this world, as a player, how do I experience the game, these extraction zones? Can you just explain as a player, what are the mechanics in the game that I'm playing with the story? Sure. When you load into a map, it's just like any other first-person shooter. There's a map selection screen, which is sorted out by landowners, if you will. It's our sort of Google search community-driven algorithm to populate the user selection screen with the best maps and best content. Once you pick a map, you load in, you just start playing, then the idea is to extract loot. There's going to be shrap periodically that you can also extract. Perhaps, no promises, but perhaps there will be environmental effects that impact your abilities. So they'll be sporadically introduced to further go along with this idea of chance and luck or sort of great equalizers in life. So that's where the story melt welds into the day-to-day -day gameplay. So when you go into the game and you are collecting all this gear in this extraction zone, you mentioned that they're NFTs, right? And you said that basically everything other than bullets are NFTs. Could you just explain how Trapnel works in terms of the blockchain? Uh, you're talking about Shrapnel, the token? The game. There's so many different components of Shrapnel, the game, right? Whether it's maps, whether it's the gear. So just explain to us what the NFTs are and how it works. Sure. I'll give a brief overview. I'll try to be brief of all the NFTs. First of all, very proud to say that all of our NFTs, all of the digital assets are on chain. So bullets and tumables. Let's start on the player side. So Essentially, on the player side, there's gear and then there's skins and vanities. So on the skins and vanities, those are things that players can create using our creator tools. And those are also NFTs. On the gear side, there's subparts of a particular weapon that you can essentially theory craft and combine. And there's multiple permutations of different gear parts that you combine into creating, let's call it a weapon. And all of them have trade-offs. So you can't just create this OP type weapon. You can actually create a custom gun that fits your play style, essentially. You can break apart that gear. All of those are NFTs. And we have an interesting crafting mechanism where you have that base tier gear, but to have this sort of gear sync, you can actually combine multiple base tier gears into a, like a higher tier. So think of it as combining five base tier pistols into a tier two pistol. Why would you do that? Well, you're gonna get a cosmetic advantage, first of all. So it could maybe radiate or have a gold foil, some tinge, some smoke coming out of it. 
and it could have a slight damage boost. Now, this damage boost is not enough for most players to actually feel the difference, but for pros mid-maxing, that's enough to entice them to essentially breed the lower tier gear into this higher tier gear. And of course, that kind applies a tier further. You can breed tier two into tier three, a higher tier gear with an even different cosmetic. So that kind of solves things on the player side. Obviously, the earning mechanism is find gear in the ground or take gear from other players and get out with it alive. You can then sell that gear on our marketplace or any marketplace if you choose. The gear is pretty fungible because once you break it down to its core components, those components are pretty ubiquitous. And there's uh, we're going to be a market maker on our base tier marketplace, essentially making sure that the price of the base tier parts don't go through the roof or don't get too cheap. So we're essentially providing bids and offers on the base tier. With the gear, so if people are taking gear out of the extraction zone, out of the system, right? Is there gear inflation? How does that work? The way it works is in any match, we make sure that the sum total of gear coming out cannot exceed the gear brought in. For example, let's just say there's $100 worth of 10 people bring in $10 US dollars worth of gear into a particular match. And on the ground, there's $50 of gear seated in the match. And maybe there'll be $30 of free-to-play gear. That's how we're accounting for free-to-play gear on the map as well, right? Uh, so that's $180 of total value. Now, the extraction heuristic is such simply, as an aggregate, you can't take out more than $100, right? So a single player who brought in 10 $10 could extract potentially with $100, but you can't extract with more than that. So that is by definition net deflationary or net neutral at least. So that's how we count for inflation in the system. Nice. Okay, so let's go to the map. So that's the gear. There's like an economy with the gear because you're not increasing supply too much. There is actually possibly deflationary. The gear actually is continuously valuable and there's a marketplace for it. What about the maps? How do the maps work? Yeah. So anyone can create a map and we actually think we're pioneering some of the first composability, Lego building blocks, open metaverse framework where a good map creator, you don't have to create a map. It may be too daunting of a task for you. You could just specialize in creating map objects, prefabs. So barrels, buildings, abandoned cars, whatever obstacles. And you could knit those as NFTs, put your own branding on it, put that on a marketplace for map creators to pull and license into their map so they don't have to start from zero. You see this in the real world, right? There's nobody does everything themselves. When you create a house, you don't go cut down the tree. There's a supply chain, right? So they have this beautifully transparent system where value is perfectly adjudicated to the right laborers in this co-creation process where on a, a co-creation platform like YouTube, it's quite not transparent how the value gets adjudicated. There's one creator, the account holder gets all the revenue from YouTube, and then they have to work out a deal on the back end with all the other coders. Here, everything is an NFT. And you don't have to start from zero. You can pull other people's NFTs in and just give them a small royalty stream uh, for them. How are the map creators and essentially the map object creators rewarded for creating these maps? Yep. So just like every protocol, there is a emissions. You can think of that as the natural resource of the, of the ecosystem. In our case, it's the scrap token. Right. That's hard cap. There will be emissions pool set aside to be emitted over time to reward participation and value-added tasks to the network. So we have a general heuristic, which is if you add value to the ecosystem, you should be rewarded for it, right? So if you create good content 
then that content becomes more popular and gets voted to the top, if you will, then you get a bigger share of the emissions. And we have a pretty interesting system to actually self-govern and have a community vote for this content in that it's a combination of voting with the SHRAP token and it's a combination of actual statistics. So I haven't seen this in too many other models, mostly tokens, when they say they're governance tokens, it's a bit of this nebulous concept of, hey, I can have platform governance and potentially vote on if we should implement anti-gravity or not, or some of these general purpose governance aspects. Our token has a very specific governance use case, and that is governing content. The problem is we have too much content in a UGC-driven a sort of content creation platform, there needs to be a community agreed upon algorithm that's not controlled by one entity to filter and be gatekeepers of this content. So what happens is you take your trap tokens, you can stake that behind maps that you think are going to do well. And the earlier you stake, the more of this staking rewards pool. So we don't have staking for staking's sake, which is what I call financial staking, or just simply staking a token in a smart contract and removing that from the circulating supply. We don't believe that that is a proper use of the token for giving out rewards. We believe that if you add value by actually putting your money where your mouth is, by filtering and voting on content, you should get rewarded for that, for actually discovering and curating content. So the voting system works with half with staking trap and half with actual player heuristics, such as time play and whatnot. Have you gotten to play yet? A little bit, yeah, yeah, but it's nothing polished or presentable. Got it. Of your own personality style then matched with the game, do you think you'll be doing more of the player poker or would you lean more on the creator side? Yep. Are you kind of excited about the most and you think you'll be kind of really diving into? Surprisingly, I'm probably more of a creator. So that's an interesting point that you bring up is that not everyone has to be this hardcore pro player to enjoy trap. You can also play another game, the creator, which is a lot more slow paced. You probably don't go and cry nearly as much if you know, you're you're terrible at it. It's more of a, a slow grind. And that's something that sort of fits my style. I want to sit down, not be rushed and just create cold maps and test that out with friends in the community. But it's, it's a really, even if the map ends up not being popular, it's just the process, the journey of going through it, creating things in this burning man style arena where you can also enjoy that with your peers. I love it. Are all the maps combinable or what are the subcomponents again that are combinable because you were saying that you could create part of the environment someone else could reuse it i might have mixed that up with the other because you all have so many types of nfts but are there subcomponents on the maps and then which ones are you think you'll be starting to play in sure so the subcomponents the barrels the trees the buildings and banded cars and obstacles they can all be minted as uh, an nft and you can be just specialized in creating one of those put your own branding on it you can call mm-hmm. it bob's exploding barrels and <laughs> maybe bob becomes the most popular so then everyone wants to put bob in their map and becomes a name brand in of itself i love it and then for the weapons then in order to craft it then it sounds like you have to be a player from that front because of the combination slash breeding nature that you were talking about is that true? I'm glad you brought that up. You don't even have to be a player. You could just be a person who is an expert craftsman. And that's yeah. all you do is just craft weapons for people. And you could build a brand there, actually. How would you get all the pieces? Because it sounds like you still have to put different weapons together. Would it be buy at the marketplace and then do such a good job that you can cover your costs? No, that's right. That's right. It's just how any business works. 
you could get a loan from somebody, you could use your own capital, buy from the marketplace, or just win it yourself through playing. Get that initial kickstart and then start crafting things and building a brand and maybe even doing it as a service. Got it. So for a player, for what they are risking or hoping to get, is it weapons and armor or is it just weapons or is there more? It's all loot. So weapons, armor, gear, helmets, boots, gloves. But most people are focused on the weapons and maybe like a body armor. Okay, very cool. And so if you lose at a certain stage, all of your gear at that same stage level is lost or it's just all of your gear that you have on you is lost? All the gear that you have on you is lost. The, the gear in your persistent inventory stays in there. So every match, you pull whatever you want from your inventory into the match and then whatever you have on you gets lost. I see. So if you die stage one, everything you brought in is gone. And then what you're doing by, if you don't lose in stage one, by continuing to stage two, you're risking yourself against better and better players effectively. That's right. Okay. Yep. Got it. There could be potential drones and some other really <laughs> cool gear as well. Very cool. Wanted to throw that out there. Amazing. I just started watching Ghost in the Shell on Netflix and nice. it's been great been getting into gear again. So love it. Cool. Yeah, for sure. Andrew brought up a really good point in that there's so many different ways to play. It's not just a first-person shooter where you can get good at first the killing people in the game, but you can also become a master craftsman and sell goods. You can be a map creator and build out maps. So there's so many different entry points. You guys really have thought this out. Yeah, for sure. This definitely wasn't just conceived in a day. We definitely got together and nerded out countless hours of, you know, in the basement somewhere and designed this architecture very deliberately. And a lot of the Thinking is modeled after the real world where there's natural resources, books, there's a lush lending and borrowing platforms for resources. People come in and craft things. There's trading, there's social spaces. So yeah, I mean, everything that we are modeling has been battle tested in that the real world has been tested. And I would like to think that we're not creating the metaverse. We know we're part of it or we're creating a mini verse and basically creating a metaverse without announcing that we're creating a metaverse and that we, we do have all the components of it. Uh, there's this ability to create things. There's ability to play, to socialize. If, if we're imagining in between matches, you don't just go to a loadout screen. You can go in a chill out lounge type place where you can socialize and detox and talk about your favorite gear and display your all your items, like an Algamer style social zone for those of you who played World of Warcraft. So you don't have to just go from one match to another in strict intensity. There's places for you to kind of chill out. And that's, that's sort of starting to sound like a continuous metaverse, right? And we also plan to productize our tech stack to where we're building a suite of solutions for ourselves to enable all this Web3 architecture, such as a custodial wallet solution, KYC AML, tax reporting, a suite of smart contract solutions, bridging solutions, whatnot. The game in the future shouldn't have to do that from scratch. And not just shouldn't, it is a absolute deadweight loss to society if they are wasting resources doing that, where they could be focusing resources on actually building a proper game. You don't have to reinvent wheel. You can just use our subnet. You can build on top of our subnet. You can license our tech stack and bootstrap your game from there, right? And we see a lot of sort of projects tackle this, hey, I want to be the metaverse layer one. We're not doing that. We're just building a game and then creating this tech stack for ourselves first and then seeing if other people want to build using our tech stack. So it's almost like you are building 
Unreal Engine or Unity for blockchain games, right? And you guys are building like a layer for almost like a financial ecosystem layer that other teams could potentially build on. Yeah, you can think of it that way. Just basically primitives for other Web3 type games to build on top of, yeah. You mentioned leasing and lending. I was really interested in that. Could you just talk about that for a little bit? Sure. Lending borrowing has been around forever in the real world. There's no reason why it shouldn't exist in the sort of digital world. And when you create skins, that's a digital asset that has potential utility that you can sort of earn a clinical yield on. But if it's not utilized, you could certainly have someone else utilize it for you at a cost. So imagine some sort of platform where you can say, lend the skin out for seven days. Maybe it's someone's birthday and you have a really high value skin. You want to just let them use it for a weekend to enter a tournament with. Of course, you could set it to where they don't lose that skin, they die, but they could just flex with it. You can gift that to them or they can pay you a couple hundred bucks or whatever the price is. It should be peer to peer and you should be able to lend and borrow assets. Choosing same goes with all the entities, including the land refabs. So it's like rent the runway for skins. That's right. That's pretty interesting. In your white paper, you talk about land and types of land. Could you explain a little bit more about that? Sure. Yeah. The land ecosystem is actually quite integral to the shrapnel content discovery platform. And Everything has a rhyme and reason. We didn't just want to dump a bunch of lands in there and big and we call it, oh, we have lands. We have a metaverse, we have lands. We didn't want to just have, just fit something into something that we shouldn't be fit into. So the essential idea behind the lands is you have a lot of maps. There's going to be a lot of content out there, but the average player doesn't want to filter through that content. The average player just wants to consume and play on the best maps. So. Just like Google, there's a lot of websites, but the average person just wants the best website to age for their query, right? So how do you get to this Google front page where you have the best content, the best maps? Well, you can design a centralized system where there's some unknown algorithm out there that promotes the best maps based off of popularity or SEO or links or whatever you want to call it. Or you can make that algorithm open source, or you can, and that's essentially what the landowner, landowner's role is to be a gatekeeper or a node operator in this content discovery protocol where call it there's a million maps out there and the player selection screen is only call it 100 maps we only have about that many landowners as well give or take because we don't want to overburden the player of choice so you get from a million maps down to 100 because the landowners have curated that content they maybe hire curators out there to do it themselves they can create content as well themselves in house and host maps. You can only host one map at a time as a landowner, but the idea behind that is you are a small business owner and let capitalism run its course and that as a landowner, you're gonna want to make best decisions to promote the best content because there is a rewards pool tied directly to performance. Another way to think about it is an analogy I like, I like to make is the Hollywood movie industry, where you can think of the landowners as small businesses who own and operate the publishers and the studios out there. There's a lot of content, a lot of creators out there creating movies and films and whatnot, but not all of those get seen by the audience, right? So there needs to be some heuristic, some algorithm agreed upon by the community. And so the landowner essentially does that on behalf of the community in, in that they select the best maps or the best movies, whatever it is, put their stamp of approval on it and ship that off to the theater for fans to consume. And we have this mapland ecosystem where the more trap that you stake on a piece of map and the more popular the map gets, 
that whole map land pair moves as a unit closer and closer to the center. So you can think of that as websites that shift in ranking and rank further and further on top of Google. So yeah, every in this model, all interests are aligned. And no, this is not going to turn into sort of corporate America in that there will be parks and places where DAOs can run and community can create their own process on how what maps should be hosted. In my opinion, what you're doing, it is like Google, right? Where there's a ranking in terms of when you're Google searching pink shoes, right? There's like a ranking of 100 pink shoes websites. The most quality, usually in concept, the most quality link on the very top is the one that you most will likely go to because Google has this algorithm that basically shows, okay, this is the one that probably is the search result that you're most likely want, right? Behind each of those links are usually like a business, right? And so in terms of the landowner, you almost own like a business and then you're trying to basically go up in the ranking in order to get played more, right? That's right. The way that the Google algorithm works is they do this backlink tracking thing where the more links that you get, the higher you move up in the search results. Whereas for you as a landowner, the more staking players that basically say, I like this map, I wanted to see it to go to number one, the more shrap you have staking to that land, the higher it gets into the ranking in terms of the search results too, right? That's right. You can view that as backlinks, but ranking isn't just determined by backlinks, it's also determined by traffic, right? So we have the amount of traffic your map experiences is a certain weight, and then the amount of votes or backlinks is also holds a certain. So this whole ecosystem that you're building out decentralized, you mostly become the game that makes the game, right? So basically you have all these different businesses or people that are building all the different components of the game. And you guys are building the platform in which these people are contributing to create a fun game to play. That's the beauty of it. It's This is the true ethos of Web3 is that you're not creating a game and then in a black box for 10 years and then dumping on people to consume. You're engaging this Burning Man style platform and create a process where you're creating a game like sort of with oh, That's super cool. So Strap is the token, like you guys have an ERC-20 token that is going to be on Avalanche, right? Which is called Trap. Yeah. That's the basically currency and government token that creators of the map, the map objects gets paid out. And then the ecosystem for the gear, is that also in Trap too? Well, Trap is the medium exchange for everything in the network. You could think of it as if the world was on the gold standard and gold was limited, then that would be Trap. Got it. So... Obviously, Trap is divisible in terms of, let's call it minting cost. We're not tying it to Trap necessarily. So in other words, if you want a minute skin, we won't say one skin equals one Trap because we understand if Trap goes through the roof, then you're going to price everyone out from minting their, the skin of their dreams, right? What we're doing is actually introducing a quote-unquote second unit of account into our system. It's called the US dollar. So we'll always say, hey, minting will cost X amount of USD equivalent, whatever stable coin it is. So when... It's just like Ethereum gas fees. Ethereum gas fees are not tied to the price volatility of Ethereum. It's tied to supply and demand times, uh, you know, sort of unit of work times the price per unit of work. And that's totally independent of price volatility of the underlying token. And we're taking the same initiative there. So you talked about minting for skins. Could you explain how that works? Minting for skins? So, yeah, part of the problem of minting and creating content is that there's spam. There's going to be spam. And to gatekeep and prevent spam and denial of service attacks and whatnot, we have to implement a minting fee, essentially. It's going to be pretty accessible. It's not going to be outrageous. And again, it's not tied to shrap pricing, but we have to pass that off to the end user to prevent spam. Also, we're 
storing the assets, the NFTs on decentralized storage protocols such as IPFS. So we need to pass that cost on to the users. So anytime a creator creates a map object or a map, do they have to mint as well? Every time you create a new asset in the ecosystem, you have to mint it. Yes. Got it. When I create a skin, like if I'm a creator creating a skin and I mint the skin, is that skin for myself or am I selling it to other people or how does the skin ecosystem work? You could do whatever you want with it. You can keep it for yourself. You could just be a person who creates skins and sells to other people. We have two groups of skins in general. We have a more of a fixed cap, fixed supply skin market, our skin tier, essentially, where that's more of a luxury tier because it has that fixed supply. And we're doing it via a sort of crafting material system where you can only mint that kind of skin with the limited supply crafting. But you can go both ways. Well, you could take the skin and deconstruct it back into the core crafting material and reskin it. But the idea behind that class is that there is a limited supply there. So that's more for a luxury marketplace. And then there's a more accessible tier of skins where there's no fixed supply. Anyone can just should be unbound by how what skins they want to mint for themselves. They're just bound by the minting fees. I saw on Twitter that you have a mint coming soon for operators on basically ETH PFPs, right? Could you explain yes. what that is? Yeah, sure. So it's actually happening June 9th and it's going to be a 10,000 piece PFP collection that features five characters, each character has a backstory and we'll drop a comic book for each character, which is also the comic books are also NFTs. And you get a lot of in-game utility or just uh, it comes with a slew of utilities, such as in-game assets, access to future airdrops, early access to the game, behind the scenes. It's really used as a mechanism to, one, bootstrap a player base in the community, and two, more importantly, to have a symbol that the players and the true gamers can unite around, right? Because we have the token, we have lands. Those are for invest. Those are not really actionable visual symbols that the community could rally. So that's why we introduced a PFP series, because we realized that symbols are important, communities are important, and NFTs and PFPs are the best way to solve the cold start problem, which is you have a platform, how do you get users if you don't, right? It kind of becomes a chicken or egg problem. Well, NFTs kind of solve a lot of that cold start problem. All right, so we kind of have an understanding of the game now. You guys are actually one of the first games that are actually like a real AAA game that are, is being on the blockchain that I've talked to, and that really makes sense. There's probably a lot of different barriers that you've had to face as you're building this game because you guys are doing something completely new, right? And so what have yeah. the challenges been for you? What has the learning process like been for you to really build a AAA game on the blockchain? Yeah, yeah, sure. So... Of course, it becomes very complex, but making a AAA game alone is already pretty complex. Integrating that with the blockchain just adds to that complexity. I think the most challenging portion is just there's no guideline. There's no school for this. A lot of times I'm just charging blind into the jungle by myself, having to figure things out by myself, right? We're building on a subject. There's very few tried and true examples of that just quite yet. It's still very new territory. So we have to, we're essentially writing the book as we read it. That's probably the most challenging part of things. It's all exciting and everything, but the technology still needs quite a few years for all the processes, the protocols to get more traction as well as to tidy up the, the code base. You mentioned building on the subnet. First of all, why did you choose Avalanche? Yeah. Okay. So Avalanche essentially gave us our own custom blockchain and it allows us to create our own app specific chain that is independent other chains out there. So essentially 
we're not sharing block space with other uh, dApps. And as we all know, block space is probably one of the most rare resources in blockchain, right? Examples of other layer ones where you are sharing block space is, for example, Solana, where everyone is crammed on that same highway. And so you do get, you're subject to downtime of like, you're subject to the error in other projects jamming out the highway. So first and foremost, we really treasure block space and we want block space all to ourselves for our app. Second, it creates this modular architecture and framework that we can fully customize. We could change out the tech stack, technology changes in the future. We want to be nimble and future-proof and have the ability to change out any part of the tech stack we want. Of course, it's a little bit more work upfront to set up the subnet, but I guess the, the analogy is you, know, you can go into a car dealership and buy a stock model off the rack, but then you're subject to that car dealership's ability to upgrade and maintain it and keep up with technology. Whereas if you have a custom car shop, you can bring in whatever technology you want and you can swap it out whenever. And so we really like that custom framework. And third, the consensus algorithm. I believe Avalanche is innovating on its snowman consensus. It's highly efficient. Most consensus, like, so you can optimize the hardware and bandwidth, but you can also optimize sort of the software and the, and the algorithm as well. And I think Avalanche has done a really good job of optimizing the consensus algorithm because it's not like a classical consensus, which is a majority of the census protocols out there where it requires sort of this all-all communication where all the nodes have to message each other to come to consensus. Instead, it does it sort of by messaging its closest peers and the closest peers me message their closest peers to where you get this avalanche effect without having each node message every other node in the network. In computer science terms, and by no definition of engineer or computer scientist, but the way I view it is, the avalanche consensus has big O of one, a constant complexity, messaging complexity, and a lot of the other consensus protocols have big O of n cubed complexity. So we'd much rather have a constant set of messaging per node than n cubed. So just to repeat it back to you, an L1 like Ethereum. So first of all, an L1 Ethereum, the reason why it's slow is because it has to basically talk to each other node in the system, right? And so because of that, it's just really slow. Whereas Avalanche, it has like an avalanche effect where one talks to three, those three talk to nine exponentially, right? That's a component. Um, there's trade-offs, obviously. Yeah. When each node talks to every other node, that is deterministic finality. Whereas on the Avalanche consensus protocol, it's probabilistic. So there is a chance that one in a million years, you could be wrong. So that is the trade-off you're taking. And second of all, that is only one component of why slow is a tricky word. I think by slow, you mean low throughput, which actually means low work per second, put sort of work per second. And Ethereum is like, they created a low block size by choice. It was a design choice to create the block size around one megabyte and the block time to be around 15 seconds. They essentially constrained the throughput advertently because they wanted the barrier entry to run a node to be democratized. So anyone can have a Raspberry Pi and not have to have a supercomputer to come in and valid and participate in the network. So slow is a kind of a tricky word. It was by definition designed to be slow to allow for more validators to come in. 
Sounds good. And then the other point that you made is that with Solana, because it is a shared blockchain, there could be a certain project that just spams the blockchain and then that's why it gets shut down. Whereas with Avalanche, you talked about subnets where you can create your own blockchain almost and pick and choose your validators, right? And that's what a subnet is. Is that right? Yep. Cool. That's right. You have your own security parameters. So it's not shared security, but you have your own block space. I wanted to get into just outside of the game, basically, you as the co-founder and the business development guy, what that experience was like around being in the blockchain world, being around the gaming world and building this blockchain game. What was the fundraising experience for you in terms of this game? Did people get it? What was that process like for you? Sure. Yeah, it was a lot of pitches. Uh, Usually we found that the people who got it, got it immediately. It was basically like, hey, you had me a hello. And then the folks who needed explaining in terms of what we're building, it's essentially this Roblox style evergreen platform for content. If you didn't get it, then it's hard to wrap your head around that. A lot of people don't get it are just aren't gamers. They don't understand that we're not competing with other games, you're competing with Netflix. And we're competing for like entertainment time. And we find that just like the internet became interactive, perhaps entertainment will become interactive to where it's no longer just read only, it's read and write. And that is kind of where yeah, what, what games are, just interactive content. Yeah, just to read off some of the investors that you've got in, it's Stephen Lin, the co-founder of Valorant, Dennis Fong, Thresh, he's a pro gamer. And then you also have crypto native funds like Dragonfly, Polychain, and Three Arrows Capital. So you have a really strong backing, not only from a fundraising background, but also the team is really legit, right? Could you talk a little bit more about the team? Yeah, sure. So the team background is... We're all from HBO Interactive. HBO Interactive was a essentially a startup inside of HBO. The mandate was to create this sort of transmedia empire within HBO. You see a lot of folks doing that. Uh, for example, Netflix is building out their interactive gaming team as well. The mandate was to take HBO IP and translate that into a video game. So you could think like Westworld and Game of Thrones. And previously, a lot of the core team members were uh, part of Microsoft Publishing. So think like the Xbox leadership team, you have any your classic Microsoft titles, X and Xbox titles. So you've listed most of the titles previously, and just collectively, we've created quite a few titles on Unreal. Our team is pretty experienced, and just want to highlight that we've been a team for quite a while. And I feel like that's rare in Web3, because Web3 is so new, a lot of teams kind of assemble people from all walks of life, may not necessarily have startup experience. They may have a good background in corporates, but haven't worked together as a team or even in a startup environment for very long. Luckily, we've gotten that out. What does business development look like for you building a blockchain game? I know that you said that every person that you had to meet, because the space is so new, you had to do a bunch of research to figure out whether or not you guys could potentially work together, right? What does that BD role look like? Yeah, it's mostly calls, partnership calls. We have a lot of constituents in the ecosystem. There's guilds, there's investors, obviously. There's tech solutions that we want to potentially partner with, wallet solutions. There's bridging solutions. And you have to first understand what they actually do and how Shrapnel relates to that ecosystem, where it fits in the ecosystem, and have calls with them to understand if this is a good fit for what we're building. And then outside of the game ecosystem, you guys are from HBO Interactive. There is a lot of things you could potentially do with this world, right? What are you thinking about in terms of expanding the ecosystem outside of the game? Yeah, so we are a transmedia company at our heart and soul. It's our bread and butter, right? So we're not just a game. It's a whole world building experience. 
And part of that comes is the reason why we're doing this PFP drought, having media across all forms. So we're going to have a comic book as well that ties into the characters. There's obviously a very lush backstory and lore. Um, there's a potential for film adaptation or TV show adaptation later down the line as well. That's definitely not off the radar. And of course, there's a lush game, but I would like to think it's more of a platform disguised as a game in that we're defining primitives of this open metaverse. I believe that I'm a big believer in the open metaverse, by the way, and that it not just needs to be populated with players, but needs to be populated with content creators. And hopefully we're taking a step in the right direction, pioneering, you know, the missing, the other side of the platform, essentially, where content creators can come together frictionlessly and create together in a cool environment and trust each other. One last thing that I wanted to ask, you've been in this world for a while now. You guys have been building out this blockchain game. We've been hearing just in general, so many people raising money for blockchain games. They see the PDE stuff, they see potential cash grab. And so we see a lot of stuff out there that doesn't make any sense, right? And so how do we, as people that don't know as much about blockchain or about gaming, analyze whether or not something makes sense or not? Like, How do you smell the bullshit? (laughs) Well, people always say the game needs to be fun. But I feel like we need to dissect that a bit more. What that actually means for a game to be fun, right? And the way I see it, there's two natural models in any gaming ecosystem. One of them is there's new resources being emitted from a new ecosystem, and there's competition to grab those primary resources. So you can think of Bitcoin as potentially the OG player game where you have miners that are competing with each other to solve a puzzle to mine out this new resource, i.e. the fixed supply of Bitcoin. Of course, there is a necessary evil, which is energy companies. You have to sell some of your Bitcoin to subsidize the energy cost to keep yourself energized and playing the game. And in that ecosystem, you have to think what actually creates value, long-term value. And that is, if you're mining and selling Bitcoin, someone has to be buying What motivates someone to buy it and to hold it and to not sell it? Well, you have to believe in the ecosystem, right? You have to believe that the ecosystem will be around for a while and you have to believe in it enough to huddle it. And Bitcoin does a really great job of that as self-sovereign store value. And that's a very strong argument that's going to replace all currency and whatnot, become the tried and true store value. The games don't exactly have that almost godlike religious belief system enshrined in their network. So what's the next best way for games to get a bunch of people who trap and lock value in the ecosystem? Well, if the game is fun, then you're going to naturally not want to sell and just keep on buying and holding assets in the ecosystem. So that's what people kind of actually, if the game is fun, then the ecosystem will grow, your TVL will grow, and people are not going to want to extract value and quote unquote earn Because the whole idea of earning is, like I said, I view that as energy costs that you're forced to extract value in order to sustain yourself in the ecosystem. And ideally, you have more people who want to, you know, enter the ecosystem than leave it by by, by earning. So that's one model that's applied to a lot of games. The other model is once those resources have been collected and all mined and whatnot, then it becomes a peer-to-peer battle between the resources, right? So our game falls into that second tier where you do have people mining new resources from Shrapnel, but then once those resources are mined, you have people competing over those resources in this uh, you know, graphical interface layered on top that 
define certain rules for who gets what. That's perfect. And just to say it back to you one more time is that the play-to-earn mechanic, when you label play-to-earn, actually makes it, that whole thing is basically, you're trying to basically get value out of an ecosystem and then pull it out, right, and sell it. And so because you're doing that, it's not actually fun to play because they don't actually believe in that ecosystem. They don't actually believe in the currency in that world. Whereas what you need to be doing is you need to be, create this world in which you want to stay in this world. And then you believe in the currency in that world. And in your world, that's trap. That's right. You have to believe in it. Not only believe in it, you just have to be entertained by it enough to want to keep value locked in the ecosystem. To basically to compete for it like gold and oil. That's right. That's right. Yeah. The problem with simulated worlds is the switching cost is very low. You can switch from one ecosystem to another. The reason why value is locked in the real world is because there's only one real world, right? So you can't switch over to another real world. But in the metaverse, you can switch over whenever. So ideally, your game needs to be fun to prevent switching costs. Got it. All right, Calvin, thank you so much for sharing with us. How can people find you? Twitter, MetaCalvinZ is the Twitter handle. Find me on LinkedIn and you can find me on this two platforms. What about the game? How do the people find the game? People can find the game by going to shrapple.com. And yes, that is a real domain domain name. We got it quite a few decades ago. Oh, wow. That's amazing. Didn't come to fruition until blockchain technology. (laughs) Wow. That's amazing. All right. Thank you so much, Calvin. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks for having me on. Thank you so much for listening until the end. If you've enjoyed this episode, please leave us a review on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. It'll help more people like you find us. You can find more about us on wild.show wld.show. Please subscribe to our newsletter or DM us on Twitter. We'd love to get to know you.